I'm going to ask you today to uh, put on your thinking caps. I'm going to take you on a little ride here. And uh, we're going to have fun. I promise it will be fun in the process. Uh, The earth is full of goodness, isn't it? What's good about the earth? Give me some ideas. What do you like about it? What? Beauty. What else? Sustenance. Yeah, food. I mean, we have this wonderful, bountiful earth that gives us this fertile soil we can plant. Acres and acres of corn and harvest it for ethanol fuel. That's wonderful. I mean, what a, what a glorious creation we live in. I mean, we have these beautiful beaches. We have this, these unbelievable mountain vistas, right? And we live in one of the most beautiful areas in the world, and I am thankful for God's good world. But the world is also full of darkness too, isn't it? Full of darkness, full of disease, full of uh, decay, and full of tragic death and cruel injustices. I don't know if you've been watching the news. Unless you live under a rock, you don't know who uh, Kaylee Anthony is, that little girl. I don't know what you think about that, that whole situation, but whatever you think about it, one thing is definitely true. Somebody wrapped that little girl, that little baby up like a piece of trash and threw her away. And that's cruel. And when I watch that, it breaks my heart. And you better believe it breaks the heart of God. Breaks the heart of God. The world looks like a really great experiment gone wrong, doesn't it? It looks like something that was a great idea that went somewhere, went horribly wrong. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to make a few observations regarding God's original vision, his original dream for mankind. And then I'm just going to make a few quick observations how Jesus restores God's original vision, his original dream for us. Oh, that's going to be the fun part. Can't wait to get there. Let's do it. Number one on your outline. Here we go. We were meant to reflect God's character mutually. We were meant to reflect God's character mutually. What do I mean by that? You and I are made in the image of God. You've all heard that, right? Made in the image and likeness of God. If you've ever read Genesis, you've read that. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in the image and the likeness of God? Let's read this passage in Genesis 1.26. Starting in Genesis 1.26, here's what it says. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the, the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. The passage, when it talks about the image of God, notice the plural context. It doesn't say God created this guy in his image. It says he created them. We are mutually the image of God. The highest, fullest expression of the image of God is a man and a woman who come together in marriage. They represent his nature. They represent something of his character. The Hebrew words there are tselem and demut. Those words uh, mean uh, image and likeness. Surprise. But what they mean is that we have the ability to self-determine our lives. We have the ability to be self-aware. And moreover, we learn from the context that we have the ability to be friends, have a spiritual friendship with God himself. That is a privilege that in a way that no other creature in all creation has. Notice in verse 26, it says, if you're there in your Bible, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. I don't know if that's a foreshadowing of the Trinity. It might be. 
But it definitely is a, what we call a plural of majesty. It's like when a king says, we shall make this decree. You know? Okay, so it is a plural of majesty, but it is a unity in plurality. I mean, God makes a proposition, comes up with an idea, presents it to the others, or the other personalities, okay? And then uh, he deliberates and takes uh, consultation within himself on that idea, and then he acts on that idea. And he makes, the Bible says, a man, the men, or mankind, male and female, he created them. So mankind together, male and female, are the fullest possible expression of the image and the likeness of God. The other night, uh, Sarah Reinhardt gave my wife and I a gift about a week ago. And she took our boys and my little baby girl uh, for two days. Just took them from us. Just said, I'm, you, go away. <laughs> I got your kids. It was awesome. They camped at her house. They had a, a really fun time. And my wife and I did not know what to do with ourselves. We usually would go out for a night or something like that. We were, we were sitting uh, there on the couch going, so what do you want to do? <laughs> you know, I got two days. What do you want to do? So we went out, and we just got ice cream. And we went out, we took a bunch of funny pictures. I wish I could have stolen them from her iPhone because we took a bunch of funny pictures, just being goofy. And that may seem like a very sort of, you know, just an everyday thing, to just be goofy with your wife. But when me and my wife were out being goofy together, we were practicing the image of God. We were being God's image together, having fun. Isn't that great? This is a great concept. When God made people, he made us to reflect his communal nature. And it's perfect character. We are never more like God than when we are together. That's what this means. Secondly, we were meant to represent God's authority. If I'm moving too fast, you can just watch it online later, okay? (laughs) We were meant to represent God's authority. What does this mean? I've heard a lot of really goofy teaching uh, on this idea. Let, Let me clarify some things. We were made to exercise dominion over God's nature as we care for it and are good stewards of it. So what does that mean? Look at this verse again. Genesis 1.26. Again, it says, uh, let us make mankind in our image. And then it says this. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look down in verse 28. God blessed them. Blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and spread out, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This is what we theologians call the kingly nature of man. This is gone beyond the communal, but this is also the kingly. God meant us to have dominion. That word is the same word that is used in the Old Testament of kings who have dominion over uh, a territory. So God meant for us to do that. God originally designed man to mutually represent his authority. And then what he does is we learn a few verses down. He puts the man into a garden so he can apprentice his landscaping skills. And then God wants to know, can this man do it? Can these people, can these human beings tend the garden and be faithful? Can they tend the sheep and be faithful and look like us? Can they do it? Will this man follow his father's word or will he break with divine protocol? This is a test. This is an experiment. I uh, remember not too long ago, I had a close encounter with the outdoor kind, of the outdoor kind. And uh, one of my absolute favorite things to do is to go tubing on the river. I love it. Uh, Our parents own a place right on the North Fork of the Quarter Lane. And every summer, about 
two or 300 times, I, I tube down that thing, right? Have so much fun with the fan. In fact, here's a picture of me out there doing it. That's with my little five-year-old. He's now six today. We're celebrating his sixth, sixth birthday today. I'll be doing this later today, which is why I look like I'm going swimming. Now, sure, one may argue, I'm sure if you're a youth pastor, you may argue that it's much more fun to be pulled behind a, a noisy boat on one of these things, right? Amen. He's like preaching. Okay, well, that's probably true. But for me personally, there is nothing, nothing like getting it yourself in a raft or a tube and just sitting there and letting the river take you. Your tube just bobs and pivots to the rhythm of the... I love it. Isn't it great? I'm sorry, I'm going to my happy place, right? But I love doing that. There is nothing, nothing on earth like that. And the reason why I love the river is because the liver... The, the liver... The river is so unforgiving. I mean, it's unforgiving. It can hurt you. You get in that river, and it doesn't matter how fast you want to go. You go the pace the river wants to go. You get in that river, and it doesn't matter uh, whether you want to go back. You can't. Tough luck. You're stuck. You're in the river. You're going to your destination. And that's what I love about it. And while the river carries you away, the hot sun just beats down on you. Oh, can't you feel it? Go there with me, folks. Hot sun, that's what I'm going to be doing today. Hot sun beating down on you. And it slowly and surely puts you into a brief coma. And you come in and out of consciousness. And when you do, all you hear is nothing but the sound of the cottonwood trees on the banks and the leaves just shaking and tremoring. And it's as if they're applauding. Yay, Jeff. Yay. Good decision today to do nothing. Anyway, on one of those float trips, I didn't have such a pleasant uh, heavenly experience. I got in my tube, and, and normally you saw in the picture, I usually like to ride in a raft because I don't like to get wet. That's the other thing, is uh, I like to stay dry. So I get into a raft that's really blown up really tight, and, uh, but this time there was none, and so I just popped on this really tiny, tight tube and got in the water, and I started on my way down, and my wife and my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law were behind me, and I felt something bump up against my um, rear area. And about a minute later, I began to yell back to my wife and, and my family, hey, I think something's in my shorts. And they just laughed and dismissed me. When we got to the end of the tube run, I got out onto the rocks, popped the tube off my backside, and that's when my sister-in-law, who was right behind me, went, ah! There's a fish in your pants. <laughs> I kid you not. And I went, what? And I turned around, and before I could take action, the fish dislodged itself from, from where it was. And, uh, <laughs> and it jumped back into the water. Bloop, gone. Right? Now, let me tell you something. You have never communed with nature until you have had a fish in your drawers. All right? <laughs> <laughs> but man, when I'm in nature, I, I turn into an Old Testament theologian. I don't know a lot of the Old Testament, but I turn into the Old Testament theologian. I just start to reflect on Yahweh, God, the creator. And I mean, it, it puts me right into his immediate presence. And I reflect on his nature, and I reflect on his creation. And it's all just perfect until some little creature swims into my shorts. Right? <laughs> 
and ruins my perfect moment. And that reminds me that this world was just a perfect place that's gone wrong. And the scripture says that I should have dominion over the fish of the sea. And if that were true, when I went out to the river today, I would walk out into the river. And I would say to the fish, thus saith your king, you shall not swim into my drawers today. I would tell them that and they would obey, but they won't obey. Why? Because the universe, something has gone wrong here. And this tension between the perfection I see in nature and the brokenness that I see in nature, the injustices, the cruelty, the darkness, came from somewhere, and it came from the man's sin. Sometimes nature turns on us. You ever watch those programs? I do with my little kids, When Nature Goes Bad. I love those programs. And some guy trying to outrun a bull, and the bull is goring him in Mexico somewhere, you know? The third truth that we notice is this. Genesis account reveals is we were made to relate to God's being. So, yeah, we were made in his image. Two, we were made to represent his authority. But thirdly, we were made to relate to him in a way that no other creature in all of creation can do. And that's what it means. So, how do we do that? Well, this passage, you may have missed it, but this is really sort of talking about the the language that it uses in here is kind of priestly language. We were meant to be God's priests in his garden, in his holy garden. Kind of weird. But people originally enjoyed immediate, the immediate veridical contact with God in some way, shape, or form. Just after mankind fell through sin, man openly rebelled and he broke with divine protocol. He chose to do it his way. Unfortunately, and right after he sinned, this is what the text says, Genesis 3.8, God came a-calling. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Ooh, underline that phrase. Time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. That is one of the most profound passages in the entire Bible. Can I tell you why? Because it tells me two things. It tells me that the, that the hiddenness of God predated the fall. It tells me that sometimes when God would withdraw his presence from them was so that they could spend time together and not be as aware of him that they, as they would be in the time of the evening breeze. I don't know what that is, but that is a priestly function. God shows up in his holy garden, and he wants to take a walk in the park with his little images, right? His little children. And so God withdraws his presence, the intensity of his presence from them. And so this ebb and flow, this rhythm of experiencing this intense glory of God, like I just experienced when we were worshiping, I just, wow, God intensifies his presence, but then he withdraws it later when I'm, you know, eating hamburgers and stuff, you know? And that was true of the garden. The second thing that I see in here is that the man and the woman knew how to withdraw from God's presence. They knew how to hide. Well, how would they know how to do that? It tells me that sometimes God's presence is intense and sometimes it's not. This is what we call the priestly function of man's nature. These perfect people live in this perfect place, don't they? They're made in the image of God and they broke the command of God. And in open rebellion, they sinned. They succumbed to temptation and deception. And the image of God in them is marred and distorted. I want to show you a movie clip from the movie, old movie uh, Gladiator. It's of uh, Emperor Commodus, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix. This guy's a brilliant actor. 
And early in the movie, he kills his father, Marcus Aurelius. And he is vexed. He is tormented by the fact that, one, he's killed his father to become the emperor. And two, his father has never glanced his way. His father has never given him the first kind look. His father has never, according to the story in the movie, has never shown him kindness or favor. And he is angry, and he is taking his anger out on his father's ancient statue. He goes into the statue room, and he's taking it out on that statue. I want you to watch this just as a warning. It is, it is emotionally graphic, okay? It's emotionally intense, so just wanted to warn you about that. Let's watch it. I'll come back up. I don't know about you, but that is just such a powerful scene. You wonder, why are you showing that in the middle of church? Because I want to tell you, that to me is an analogy. That's an illustration of what you and I have done to the image of our Father in us. You and I don't like to think of ourselves that way, do we? With that kind of brutal hatred for the image of God that we once bore. But that is precisely what mankind did when he decided to openly rebel against his heavenly father. It is as if sin has taken a machete to the image of our holy father. That's just an analogy, just an illustration, but it it gives you an idea of how dark and ugly sin is and what sin can do. Now, God's image is still with us. God's image is still in us, but it's defaced. It's distorted and it's marred. And so God longs to bring us back into fellowship with him. So here's the conclusion. Because man sinned, the image of God was tarnished, meaning we no longer reflect his character, his nature. Our effortless dominion over nature evaporated, and now we toil and labor and struggle against it. And we become relationally separated from God, leading to our physical and relational death. Those are the effects of sin. We have become separated from God for eternity. I want to hit rewind for a second. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and here, what do we find? The first thing we find that God does is, first of all, he exists. And so he calls creation into being, right? 
Just let there be. Okay, so he created the world, the universe, the cosmos. Very next verse says, and the earth or the cosmos was without what? Purpose, and it was formless or functionless. The Hebrew words are tohu wabohu. You can write that down. Isn't that cool? Learn some Hebrew today. Tohu wabohu. And tohu wabohu means purposeless, without purpose, and without form or function. And so what God does is really a two-phase creative process. First of all, he creates. He creates the raw matter. He creates the stuff of the universe, the space, the time, the matter, the energy. But then he goes into a creative process. He goes into a process where he actually takes that stuff and he starts to make stuff out of it. Over this period of time, what he does is he, he orders that stuff and gives them functions and puts them into an orderly system. And by the time he's done, his entire deal is good. It's no longer tohu wabohu. It's no longer empty and purposeless and functionless and without function. It's now good. It's good. But then God decides to do better. He says, let's make mankind in our own image. And so God, we tend to think of him as the master engineer, right? God is the cosmic engineer who, uh, whose calculations are always precise, and he sort of calibrates the physical universe to unfathomable tolerances, right? But God is not just a mechanical engineer. He's an artist. He likes to get his hands in the paint. And so he gets down into the mud, and he starts throwing mud together. Have you ever watched a kid build a sandcastle? The funnest thing, we went up to Sandpoint a couple of weeks ago, and my little girl gets down, and she's never done it before, she gets down in the sand, and she just starts building little things in the sand. And she starts digging a trench. Kids just know to do it. And she's running back and forth from the lake, back to her little sand world that she's constructing. And about an hour and a half later, my little girl has sand on her face, on her arms, everywhere, and down in her little pants. She has it in her ears, up her nose, in her hair. She's covered in sand, but there's this wonderful little, you know, sandcastle land that she's constructed for an hour and a half. And so get this picture of God. God is not just a mechanical engineer who, you know, speaks and calls things into being. He's down in the dirt. He's down. Moses wants you to see this picture of God intimate with his creation, making this man, forming this thing. And he's like, oh, this is going to be so great. And then the scripture says he does something he doesn't do for any other thing in creation. He breathes into it, the fesh and ruach, this aspirated word, which means that he just breathes into this man something of himself. It's kind of a mystery, but it's something of himself. It's the image of God in the man. And it's beautiful. And mankind is at once the best idea that God has ever had, and he's also the riskiest one. The best idea that God has ever had, and he's also the most dangerous idea that God ever had. Because the biggest star that God has ever created in the universe, when it goes supernova, can't ruin the universe. But the man, the man can. The man can do something. In him is, are some inherent properties of destruction because he's a free moral agent. And this man can make choices. And this man can choose to rebel against his God. And that is precisely in the story what we see happen. Mankind, through his sin and his rebellion, reintroduces tohu wabohu back to the story. Mankind reintroduces he loses his purpose. He loses some of his functionality as the king of the world. And so he is thrown into a chaotic state. And that is what we read about in the rest of Genesis. Sad. 
And we are part of that narrative. But before the man ever has a chance to sample the garden contraband, before he ever has a chance to eat the forbidden fruit, God has already in eternity provided for his restoration. Back to fellowship with himself and ultimately back to harmony with his world. I want to read you what Paul has to say about this. Romans 8, 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing on the edge of its seat for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning under labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits, very important sentence, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What is Paul saying here? The creation is waiting. The the creation is waiting to be rehabilitated. And it starts with the renovation of the heart of man. It starts with the soul of the man. And when God renovates him, then God can take care of the rest of his program to rehabilitate the world. But the world is like, it's like on the edge of its seat, just waiting for the man to be renewed. So this is what we call the doctrine of new creation. And if you are in Christ, you are a participant today in new creation. New creation starts now. It doesn't start at the end of the world. It starts now when you become a born-again person. Let's talk about that. I want to make three quick points of what Jesus does to unwind the, the effects of the fall. Number one, by faith in Jesus, we are reborn into the image of the Son. Romans 5, Paul's theological language there is, we have the first Adam who messed it up. Now we have the second Adam, the second man. And now those of us by faith who are born into Jesus are born into his image. The scriptures say, until Christ be formed in us. We are formed after the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says this, so if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, Hallelujah. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. What Paul is saying is, is as good as, it's a done deal. It's as good as done. The new is coming. God reconstitutes a new humanity in the person of Christ. So if you're participant by faith with Jesus, you're a participant in God's new world that's coming. But it's all ready. Number two, Jesus restores our authority to establish the kingdom of God. He restores our authority to establish the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, God's original dream for us was that we would would have dominion over the earth. God's original dream for us is that we would be co-regents with him in the earth. That's his original vision. And so Jesus restores us. The New Testament teaches this. Let me give you a glimpse into something that I don't frankly understand that well because there's not, not a lot in it in the New Testament. There's some great passages here you can look up. Galatians uh, 4, 7, Ephesians 3, 6, Romans 8, 17. They all use this word heir or co-heir, co-ruler, co-regent. Somehow in the future kingdom, when God establishes his rule on earth, somehow you and I will be reigning with him. I don't understand that, but that that will be kind of cool. Revelation 2, 26, Jesus promises the church. He says, to everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give you authority over the nations. 
1 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul gives us this cryptic verse. I don't even know really what it means, but he gives us this cryptic verse. The apostle Paul tells the church there who are squabbling and, and suing each other. He says, hold on. Don't you guys know that in the future you're going to be judging the world and you're going to be judges of angels themselves? I have no idea what he's talking about, but that's kind of a cool idea. He says, can you not settle disputes among yourselves? So what are we to do until Jesus fulfills this a vision of God of us sort of reigning with him for eternity? When he finally wraps the whole deal up, he's given us another kind of authority. It's what I call an interim authority. And it's in Matthew 28. Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm authorizing you to go make disciples of the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That is discipleship. Making disciples of Jesus, of the nations. That's our authority. We are authorized to do that until Jesus consummates his kingdom. What do I mean by that? Until he sets up his physical rule on the earth, it's our job as the church, as, an out, as a kingdom outpost in this community, it's our job to populate his kingdom with citizens. That's our job. That's our authority. He's given it to us. Great stuff. Love it. Number three, we are restored to friendship with God. That's probably the best part. It's that priestly function, that friendship with God that was lost through sin is restored and then some. You know, when you read the end of the story, which I'm going to read you in just a second, it isn't just paradise lost is now restored. It's paradise lost is restored and then some bonuses, right? Incredible. Romans 5.10 says this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely have been, we have been reconciled, uh, we will be saved in his life or by his life. By faith in Jesus, we are restored. We are re the first installment of God's restored creation. I want to read to you about another river. I like this one. I don't think God's going to let me go tubing down it, but I kind of hope he does, but uh, it's called the river of life. And it's in this passage, if you never read the end of Revelation, you can skip the rest of Revelation. Just read the very end, okay? It's the best part. Because it's when God wraps this whole deal up. And Revelation gives us a very graphic picture of how he does that and, and how beautiful that's going to be. I want to read it to you. Revelation 21.1, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. No more beaches. Sorry. I'm going to be bummed. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the, uh, heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among men. That was God's original vision for us, that he would make his home among us. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away, and the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I make all things new. Revelation 22.1 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. 
And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no lamp or sun for the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign with him forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Isn't that a great promise? Isn't that a great picture of the future? That is why no matter what you face, no matter what you and I go through in this life, when we all see Jesus, that old song used to say, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Won't that be a wonderful time? And when we think through what we have lost, when we think through losing the image of God or defacing the image of our Father in us, when we think through that the fact that we lost our original vocation to be his image in the world ruling with him, when we lost friendship with Almighty God, this passage tells us that all things will be restored. And that gives us hope. The presence of the Spirit right now is here to renovate your soul, to renew you. And Paul in Ephesians 1 calls it the down payment or the first installment of God's new creation, of this promise of wrapping things up. So I want to invite you to do that. Let's pray. Worship team is going to come back up. So if you're here today and you have not started your journey of faith with Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. Pretty simple. First of all, you admit that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. I mean, it's basically that. You admit that you've fallen, and you're a son of Adam and Eve, and you need God's forgiveness. That's number one. Number two is you bow your knee to the Son of God, Jesus, who paid the price for your sins on a cross and who rose from the dead three days later to vindicate his claim and his authority to do that. And once you do that, you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, the scripture says you'll be saved. Let me lead you in a prayer. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I ask that you would just wash me clean. Just wash me, Lord. Jesus, I believe that you died for me and you rose three days later to save my soul, to save me for you and for the new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you did that today, you're saved. There's another prayer I want to pray with you. Some of you, um, frankly, and I hear this a lot from some of you, uh, you just, you don't know what it's like to be in the intense presence of God, the way Adam and Eve were in the, the cool of the garden, the evening, the way some of you I see experiencing the, the, the presence of God, and I want to pray for you right now. Just as we worship this last song, not too late, you can experience the manifest presence of God in this place together as we sing. Let me pray for you. God, I just pray as we lift up our voices in worship to celebrate new creation, to celebrate our participation in your salvation plan for the world, I just pray that you would come into this place just like you did in the garden, just like you did in the book of Acts, just like you did in, uh, for Paul and Jesus and Peter. And I pray that you would just reveal yourself to us Reveal your presence to us. Help us to know that we know that you're near. And every person who is experiencing the effects of this fallen world, comfort them, heal them, touch them. In Jesus' name. Okay, let's worship. Usher's gonna come forward. We're gonna take the offering this morning. We're gonna worship God and then I'll come back up.